Good afternoon. Uh, I am Trevor Burris, a research fellow here at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. And now we move to the potpourri panel. Um, I had a reporter ask me the other day what the commonalities of this panel, what they are. And I, I said, well, the Supreme, Court, the Supreme Court doesn't really work thematically, so you, know, you can't really fault us for that. Uh, they're not like, this is going to be the blue term or something like that. Uh, but I, I thought about it for a while, and I did all these cases in different ways, media, op-eds, debates, uh, speeches, things like that. And it, it struck me that one theme that ties these cases together is the sort of an argument made on the other side for all these what I would call victories for liberty cases, which is protecting all these rights is really hard, and if you made us protect these rights, it would be a lot of work. Now, any good fan of limited government should have zero patience for the fact that limited government is hard on the government. Um, Harris V. Quinn, for example, I debated a guy on the radio who before he told me that unless I was for forcibly unionizing home health care workers, I, either I should be for that or move back to Somalia. Um, that was how we began it. But then he actually asked, he said at one point, are you really telling me that, that you think that all these unions should be voluntary or have to go ask everyone if they want to be in a union? Because that's going to be like a lot of work. And I said, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that, I'm saying that. I'm sorry if it's hard. Uh, and then in Riley v. California, on the law enforcement side, you heard people saying, are you really telling us that every time we arrest a person, we're going to have to get a warrant to search their cell phones? It's going to take a lot of work. Yeah, same thing, uh, <laughs> rights, you know, kind of thing. And then Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, uh, which as an aside is, first of all, a case that should never have happened but for government putting two people at war against each other in a game that I call the primitivism of politics, uh, two tribes that they create to manufacture a problem out of thin air because we somehow get health insurance through our jobs because of the government's fault. <clears throat> which brings in the unofficial model of the Cato, motto of the Cato Institute, don't hate the players, hate the game. Uh, but in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, you heard the same thing. It was, are we really going to have to give all these religious exemptions, going to have to give them all the exemptions all this time? Like, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, sorry. Uh, and it's going to take us some work, but you just reverse engineered the principles of a free society because that's why you don't pass laws like Obamacare, because you have to give all those exemptions. But moving forward, uh, I will introduce our speakers uh, with the, your biographies in your packets, so before they speak, uh, speaking first on the case of Harris v. Quinn is Jacob Hubert, a senior attorney at the Liberty Justice Center, which is the Illinois Policy Institute's free market public interest litigation center. He is a BA in economics from Grove City College and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. After school, he clerked for Judge Deborah L. Cook of the Sixth Circuit. He joined the Liberty Justice Center in 2011. He has taught as an adjunct law professor at various colleges, including the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. And he is the author of Libertarianism Today, a book I commend to you. And his writing has been published widely and scarly. So, Jacob. Thank you. Uh, Harris versus Quinn is a case about when the government can force someone to pay fees to a union. And under the Supreme Court's case law of the past several decades, the government can force you to pay fees to a union if you're a government employee. Harris versus Quinn considers whether the government can make you pay union fees if you just receive a subsidy from the government for some service you provide to a private third party. In particular, and the court said, to cut to the conclusion, no. Uh, the court considered in particular a scheme enacted 
by the former governor of my state of Illinois, Rod Blagojevich, that uh, forcibly unionized people who receive a subsidy through a state Medicaid program. These people, most of them, take care of a disabled person who is their family member, their parent or their child, say, who is disabled and needs round-the-clock care in their homes. Uh, uh, they receive a subsidy for that. And uh, this program exists so that these people can be cared for in their homes and not have to be institutionalized. Uh, and Blagojevich's order made them government employees only for the purpose of unionization. The state specifically disavows these people as employees for all other purposes, including liability, benefits, anything else. They're not government employees, except for purposes of collective bargaining under this executive order. And so shortly after this executive order was issued, the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, stepped forward to represent these people. And before long, their checks, which they had used to care for their loved one, were being reduced so that some of the money could be sent to the SEIU, supposedly to represent their interests before the government. Now, just if you... If you're generally familiar with the principles of freedom of association and free speech, this should seem uh, offensive uh, because, of course, these people are being forced to pay an organization that they may want to have nothing to do with and, and particularly to speak on their behalf even though they may disagree with that speech. And it's really even worse than that because it also affects the interests that all of us have in an open marketplace of political ideas where the government doesn't... Uh, put its thumb on one side of the scale. But of course, here you have governors taking tax dollars and redirecting them to a special interest group that's going to use that money to advance its public policy ideas. So it's really outrageous. And if you're familiar with the principles of free association, free speech, open marketplace of political ideas, you might think it's an easy First Amendment case. You might think that any judge would look at that and say, of course you can't do that. Of course the government can't direct resources toward its, some uh, political ally to use for public policy advocacy purposes. But unfortunately, the issue is not so simple as that. In fact, the plaintiffs in Harris versus Quinn, who were uh, participants in, the, um, in this program, who were forcibly unionized, lost at the Federal District Court and before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And they lost because of the U.S. Supreme Court's 1977 decision in a case called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. That case considered whether the government can force real government employees to pay union fees. And the court decided that they could. And it's it's not a, it's a bad decision. It, first of all, of course we can see that if, even if you're a government employee, making you pay fees to a union to speak on your behalf still infringes on your right of association, your right of free speech in the same way because you could still disagree with the union uh, even if you're a government employee. Uh, but of course, First Amendment analysis isn't as simple as whether it infringes your First Amendment rights, even if some of us wish it were that way. There's no right, according to the Supreme Court, is absolute. Uh, and the government can violate your rights if it presents what the court considers to be a good enough reason. And in First Amendment cases, that would typically mean that the, the government can only infringe your First Amendment rights if 
the government shows that doing so serves a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means by which the government can achieve uh, that, uh, conserve that interest. But the Abood case didn't really engage in that kind of First Amendment analysis. It just said, it said that the government, that, that taking fees from government employees served the government's interest in preserving labor peace, so you don't have like warring unions in the workplace, and uh, in preventing people from free riding off of the union's representation by refusing to pay for it and letting others pay for it. But, but it didn't really get into the whole First Amendment analysis of whether that's a compelling interest and whether there's any less restrictive means. Instead, the court just pointed back to two earlier decisions, one called Railway Employees versus Hansen, one called Machinists versus Street, and said that those had already decided this issue, essentially, that they had already said that you can make people pay union fees uh, to uh, serve the interest of labor fees. Don't really have time to explain those decisions and why they're not on point, but, but they really aren't at all on point. They're not, they didn't consider this First Amendment question. One of them considered whether uh, Congress can authorize a private company to enter into a union shop agreement, and the other one involved an issue of statutory construction and didn't address the First Amendment at all. So they really weren't on point, but the Abood court just, just acted like they were and said that you can force government employees to pay union fees, but the court said you can't make them pay for the union's political activities uh, th that aren't germane to collective bargaining, which would be you know, things like unions, electioneering, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, which, and that's problematic, too, because public sector union speech is pretty much always political speech, even if they are collective bargaining, because what can a public sector, what does a public sector union do to bargain? It says, you should pay these employees more, you should spend more on benefits for these employees. And that, of course, is an issue of public policy on which others may also have opinions. Taxpayers, for example, may think that we should spend less on employees in a government program. And there's no question that when a taxpayer makes that kind of argument, they're engaging in political speech. So the union really is also just doing that. It's just doing it on behalf of the employees. So it introduced that distinction, which really uh, does not make any sense and creates a sort of line drawing problem because it's it, as to what you're going to call uh, political and not political. But that's been the law ever since. And cases since then that have looked at public sector unionism and the First Amendment have just looked at, have uh, considered, well, what, what side of the line does a particular type of expenditure fall on? Is it political? Is it not? Uh, and what kinds of procedural protections have to be in place to make sure that workers uh, aren't forced to pay for the so-called political speech uh, and, uh, and that's it. The court has not gone back and revisited Abood itself. There was a decision two years ago, uh, Knox versus SEIU, however, in which uh, Justice Alito, writing for the five uh, so-called conservative justices, started hinting that the court would maybe be willing to reconsider Abood, casting some doubt on its foundations. In that decision, uh, Justice Alito... Um, noted that it was, in his words, anomalous that we allow government to infringe on people's First Amendment rights to address a free rider problem. 
Because there are lots of situations where we free ride off of other speech but can't be forced to pay for it. I mean, I'm a lawyer, and there may be some lobbying group, the, some group that lobbies on behalf of lawyers, and maybe I would benefit from that financially or somehow, but you can't just come in and make me pay for their lobbying because I might benefit. Otherwise, the government could start uh, uh, charging all of us for, um, for speech that's allegedly on our behalf. So you can't do that in general, but, but somehow the court was tolerating it, tolerating it in the union context, and Alito noted that that was strange, and he also noted that it places, this whole system places a weird burden on employees because you have to opt out of the political part, and even the stuff that's supposedly non-political, uh, the, the, the union gets to decide what's political and what's not political, and if you have a problem with it, then you have to challenge it, and you have to spend your own resources to do that, which of course would be very expensive. So Knox um, made people think that Abood was vulnerable, and some people thought the court might overturn Abood in Harris versus Quinn. Uh, the court didn't do that, however. The court in Harris uh, just distinguished Abood. They, the court said, well, Abood applies to government employees, and these people aren't government employees. They just receive a subsidy, and that's different. And they went through the ways in which they're different. Well, the government isn't supervising them, and it's not, it's not hiring and firing them, and, and, and all that sort of thing. And it successfully distinguished Abood, doing what it so often does in avoiding an important constitutional question by deciding a narrower issue. But the five-justice opinion uh, by, uh, written by Justice Alito did thoroughly eviscerate the Abood opinion and pointed out all the problems with it. He pointed out how the Hansen and Street decisions uh, did not support the court's conclusion in Abood. And he pointed out how the distinction between private sector and public sector unions is really important for the reasons I've just gone over, uh, but, the, but the Abood court totally ignored that. And so the Harris decision left Abood really without a leg to stand on, and yet left it standing. And so it leaves us with the question of, is the court going to take that next step and overturn Abood? And certainly, if the issue would be squarely presented to these five justices, it's really impossible to imagine that they would uphold Abood, given what they just said about it. Uh, even in light of the uh, stare decisis factors, it, it's hard to see how they could uphold it because they say it was, it was poorly reasoned. It's been hard to administer since because you have to draw these lines between political and non-political speech. And uh, it, it, you know, it treats union members rather unfairly in, in uh, making them do things to protect their rights. So I think that these justices, given the opportunity, would overturn Abood Given, not only given the opportunity, but being forced to decide on that issue and that issue only would do that. So it's really a question of will the issue come back to the court while this five-justice majority is still on it? And we can't know that. But we can know that Harris versus Quinn definitely is benefiting a lot of people all by itself. There were some 20,000 people in this program in Illinois who will no longer be forced to pay dues to a union. Uh, Governor Blagojevich had also done the same thing to daycare providers in Illinois. It, uh, made, he made it so that if you operate a daycare out of your home as your business and one of the children that you care for receives a government subsidy because their parents are of low income, then you, the daycare operator, 
have to pay dues to the union because you are receiving a government subsidy through this child that you serve. And uh, that should, of course, fail under the reasoning of Harris versus Quinn. And we uh, helped a daycare provider in Illinois uh, write to the governor and say, hey, you should let us out now, too, because of Harris versus Quinn. And to our shock, the, the, uh, the, uh, the state uh, agreed. They said, OK, we'll stop. And uh, all across the country now, other states are also doing that for their home, where they have unionized home care providers or daycare providers. The states are actually relenting. And the SEIU, it looks like, isn't going to fight it either, presumably because um, uh, they don't want to lose court battles and have to pay attorney's fees, basically. Uh, I think they realize they have lost this one. And uh, of course, that's a good thing. And in fact, uh, it's, it's, so it's forcing the unions to go back to the drawing board. Of course, they're not going to give up completely. And it was interesting to see the, uh, the left-wing website in these times had an article shortly after Harris versus Quinn came out that said, the title of which was, has asked me, which is another public sector union, has asked me found the cure for Harris versus Quinn. And this article said that the unions were now trying a new experiment uh, to try to increase their roles and their revenues after Harris versus Quinn. And the experiment is, they're going to see if they can get people to voluntarily give them money so that they can advance their ideas. So uh, I think that's a great experiment for them to try. It's what the rest of us have had to do all along. And uh, they had better get used to it, since it looks like Abood's days may be numbered. I think Rod Blagojevich, he did that before he went to the governor's wing of the Illinois State Prison, I imagine. <laughs> Uh, next up is uh, my colleague Jim Harper, who is a senior fellow here at Cato. That is your title now, right? Okay. <laughs> he works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. He was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data, Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. He has been cited in numerous print, internet, television media outlets. He is the author of Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. And he recently quoted the book of Terrorizing Ourselves, How U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It. Jim? You haven't heard me talk yet. Um, thank you, Trevor. Thank you for that valiant effort to tie these subject matters together. I think uh, that'll go down in history. Um, Thank you to the Cato Institute for employing me 10 years yesterday. It was my anniversary at, uh, at Cato. Um, thank you, thank you, Cato supporters, for the support that allowed, allowed me to continue here. And other, among other things, uh, to brief the Supreme Court on Fourth Amendment issues, including the Riley and Worry cases that I'll discuss today. The author in the, in the Supreme Court review that, uh, that did, did the article, Andrew Pincus of Meyer Brown, uh, did a wonderful job, and I commend his article to you uh, in the new issue of the Supreme Court Review. I'll follow roughly the same uh, order as he did in his article, but I have uh, different and perhaps iconoclastic views of how to think about the Fourth Amendment issues that I'll, that I'll share with you. So uh, I'll recommend to you my talk, and you've already made the mistake of, of being here for it, but also uh, Andrew, Andrew's fine, fine article. Uh, 
the Riley decision is based on two cases that, that I, uh, I thought was interesting were argued separately, Riley and Worry. Uh, Riley, the one that the, that the uh, opinion was issued under, was the case uh, of an individual in California who was properly arrested uh, with a, a smartphone in his possession. It's a given in the case that he was properly arrested. The smartphone in his possession, law enforcement accessed and saw information that led them to believe that he was a gang member. Further investigation based on that, on that information uh, caused, caused uh, further charges to be le leveled against him. And upon conviction, he challenged the use of the cell phone data uh, in gathering that information for those, for those further charges. Worry was a different case in which uh, another man, properly arrested, uh, had a flip phone. And the flip phone had, as flip phones do, quite a bit less information. But the, the flip phone's ringing displayed uh, a, 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 an image that displayed the text, my house, and opening the flip phone enabled law enforcement to access the telephone number that correlated to my house. And then using a reverse lookup service, uh, find out what house that was, go to the house, uh, further investigate where they found further incriminating materials against worry. My suspicion is, and, and, it, and it would have followed the typical pattern, that these two cases were argued separately on the premise that there might be different outcomes in the two cases. Perhaps you could certainly, ahead of, ahead of time, you could certainly envision that one case, the smartphone case, might reflect a constitutional intrusion because of the vast amount of data that, it, that is on a smartphone. And the flip phone case may not have. And it would have been a very, very interesting line drawing exercise if the court had come to the conclusion that one was, a, one was an illegal search and one was a legal search. I think they set themselves up originally for that possible outcome. They didn't come to that conclusion, though. And it was a unanimous uh, opinion uh, combining the two cases in the Riley decision. The issue area being explored, of course, was the search incident to arrest doctrine, which some of you may remember from law school, and a few of you who have been defendants may know about it more intimately. Uh, the, 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 the basic doctrine is laid out by the Chamel decision of in 1969. In that case, if, the, if I recall the facts correctly, a person was arrested in his home, and law enforcement used the fact of the arrest in his home to search quite broadly within the home for, for whatever interested them. Uh, the court found that that was not an appropriate search, that the appropriate search incident to arrest uh, rests on, on uh, two rationales. One is a search that will ensure the safety of the officers, so a search for weapons on the person, a search for weapons nearby, other instruments, removing instruments from an individual who might try to use them to elude uh, law enforcement to escape. The other is the likely loss of evidence. If you leave evidence with a defendant, with a, with a, a suspect, uh, they could try to destroy the evidence. They could try to eat it, throw it away, step, you know, step on it, crush it into the ground, whatever it may be. And so it's perfectly uh, reasonable under the Fourth Amendment to search uh, a, an arrestee in the interest of gathering evidence. Perhaps the apex of the uh, search incident to arrest doctrine was a case called Robinson in 1973 uh, from which the container doctrine arose. Robinson was arrested, to, to give you some local flavor, was arrested at 8th and C Street Northeast, just a few blocks from where I live now. It's a better neighborhood now. Uh, and, and he was arrested for a, for a driving infraction. And in the course of the arrest, they patted him down, found a cigarette pack uh, that was crumpled up in his shirt pocket. Uh, no chance whatsoever that a crumpled cigarette pa uh, pa uh, pack in the shirt pocket could have any further evidentiary uh, uh, 
use with regard to the arrest, but nonetheless, law enforcement officers searched the crumpled pack, found heroin capsules inside, and arrested Robinson. The court approved that arrest on a broad search incident to arrest doctrine, and since then, in subsequent cases, had started to pair back. Uh, cases where uh, law enforcement had searched a, 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 a large trunk, a luggage container that was that was proximate to the to the arrestee, and so on and so forth. Well, so there's the search incident to arrest doctrine and container doctrine. The argument on the government side was that a cell phone, a flip phone, or a or a smartphone uh, is a, is equivalent to a container. It happens to contain a lot of information, but it's roughly the same as a small parcel or item you might carry on your person. The court said no. And again, combining the two cases, said the following. I'll just read the penultimate uh, paragraph from uh, Chief Justice Roberts' decision. Modern cell phones are not just another technological convenience. With all they contain and all they may reveal, they hold for many Americans the privacies of life, citing to Boyd, 1886, a major uh, case about the home. The fact that technology now allows an individual to carry such information in his hand does not make the information any less worthy of the protection for which the founders fought. Our answer to the question of what police must do before searching a cell phone seized incident to an arrest is accordingly simple. Get a warrant. Now, I like that quote. I think that's a fascinating, clear quote. And I think it was an affirmative choice on the part of Justice Roberts and perhaps other justices working with him on the opinion. Uh, I like that. I like that outcome. I like that language. And, and I like the unanimity of the opinion, which still is, is quite rare with the court. But in my opinion, that the outcome in the case and the, and the language provides a direction, but not a path for Fourth Amendment doctrine in future cases. In his article, Andrew Pincus goes through many of the same cases that I would. Uh, the Kelo decision, K-Y-L-L-O, not K-E-L-O, the property rights decision, in 2001, in which Justice Scalia found that the use of a thermal imager to survey the side of, of a home and discover heat waves emanating from it was a search. The Jones case, uh, more recently, just a few years ago, found that attaching a GPS device to a car and using the fact of that GPS device being attached to the car over a period of four weeks to collect 2,000 pages of information about where that car has been is a search. Pincus went into the Maryland v. King case, which is a, a not, such, not so much a search case, but a case about the, the privacy consequences of gathering DNA evidence from arrestees. Uh, and, then, and then this case, Riley and Weary, its companion case, the check of a, of a cell phone properly taken from an arrestee, uh, its contents, and that being a search. Uh, I think you take direction from that, but certainly in the Riley case, I don't think we got any further elucidation of what doctrine the Supreme Court will use in the future with the Fourth Amendment. It's notable, I think, that in the Kelo decision, Justice Scalia did not rely on the reasonable expectation of privacy test that comes from Justice Harlan's concurrence in uh, Katz versus United States, 1967. Neither was the reasonable expectation of privacy test uh, used in the Jones case. And here in Riley, the court did not rely explicitly on the reasonable expectation of privacy test, though many, many commentators uh, assume that the basis of the test was the reasonable expectation, or the, the basis of the outcome was the reasonable expectation of privacy test. That test, I've written several times and say every chance I get, uh, is a backward test. 
it, it reasons backward from expectations to constitutional protection. And it doesn't work. Most people know that it's circular, that uh, in, in the modern era, there's a sort of battle going on. What are our expectations with regard to modern communications? Well, if the government can pound down on them far enough, then they get to access them constitutionally. Whereas if we convince ourselves that we do have privacy, then we get constitutional protection. That's, uh, that's no basis for constitutional decision making. The path that I argue for and have argued for in briefs to the Supreme Court uh, is to really follow the inspiration of Terry versus Ohio. That's the very familiar case uh, that was decided just shortly after Katz, in which law enforcement is spying a couple of shady characters looking like they're doing shady things. Uh, law enforcement officers seized them briefly, searched them, and found a gun. Terry versus Ohio ratified that. More importantly than the outcome was the fact that the, the Terry court explicitly noted the existence of a seizure and then explicitly noted the existence of a search. The, the seizure was stop here, you don't go anywhere. The search was the padding and the feeling of a hard object against the hand was the search that revealed the existence of a gun. If Fourth Amendment doctrine is to be administered well, I think the Supreme Court should return to Terry-like decisions and follow as closely as possible the actual text of the Fourth Amendment. Do not use reasonable expectation doctrine to reason backward from expectations of the constitutional protection. Rather, courts should ask first, was there a seizure? I ask first about seizures, though the phrase is search and seizure, because very often searches are preceded by a seizure. Was there a seizure? That's the taking of some property right, however small. And the Jones case is a good illustration of the taking of a very small property right. The attachment of a, of a small, even a small lightweight GPS device to the underside of a car converts that car to law enforcement's purposes. It violates even a slender read of that narrow right to exclude that's at the center of property rights. Things that are yours are yours for any reason and every reason and someone else can't come along and claim they have a better reason why they should take these things. It's the essence of property rights, the right to exclude. In my brief to the court on that case, I cited Tony Honoré, the, sort of the legal philosopher who goes more deeply into the incidents of property that are so important. Was there a seizure, even a small seizure? We can talk about whether or not it was reasonable. And the way I think about it, there can be reasonable seizures when they're, when they're small enough, when their consequences are minimal. More importantly and more directly, was there a search? And more often cases deal with whether, whether or not there was a search. In the Kelo case, using a thermal imager to make things visible that were un otherwise invisible to law enforcement using Outre technology was a search. Law enforcement were standing on public property. They didn't invade a, a property right by walking onto to Kelo's land. But they used a high-tech device to take things that were otherwise not perceptible and make them perceptible. That's searching, almost literally. And like some kind of fool, I often cite Black's Law Dictionary to the Supreme Court of the United States, because I believe they should stick to natural language as best they can to administer the law well. The final question, and the question where the judging must happen, is was the seizure or search reasonable? There can be reasonable seizures. There can be re re reasonable searches. Under reasonable expectation doctrine, all the questions are usually collapsed together. And the finding of a search, which upsets a reasonable expectation of privacy, is almost always unconstitutional.
but follow that path like you're like you're like you're implementing a law, a statute as written. Was there a seizure? Was there a search? Was it reasonable? Well, did the court take all of the Cato Institute's advice uh, at the at the end of my pen with the uh, the valuable assistance of uh, uh, of colleagues here at Cato? Not really. And the, the case, I think, in Riley was notable for the fact that it really, really avoided a lot of the issues that had been raised in past cases. Justice Roberts wrote the opinion where I would have expected uh, Justice Scalia to do it, because he's taken so many of these cases over, over recent years. The opinion was unanimous. Justice Alito wrote a concurring opinion that didn't reveal much more. And I suspect that the reason why the case was handled this way is because the court recognizes that matters of Fourth Amendment import and intense interest are coming their way. I speak of the NSA spying cases making their way uh, through the DC Circuit and through the Second Circuit in New York right now. It's a guess based on no knowledge whatsoever. I will stand up here and just, just guess before you that the court determined uh, that it should not tip its hand either way on some of the doctrinal issues that I think will affect the, the NSA spying cases coming their way again. Uh, November 4th is an important, important uh, date in upcoming because the D.C. Circuit will, will hear uh, argument in the case uh, in, in this jurisdiction. Andrew Pincus's article goes into some of the major issue areas that you can expect Riley and, and, and the previous cases to affect in the near future, and that's valuable reading for folks who are, who are getting into this area. The question whether email is constitutionally protected, the third-party doctrine, which is the argument the government uses to maintain the NSA spying program, would hold that all emails are available to the government without a warrant. And the Warshock case in the Sixth Circuit found otherwise. That may make it to the court, but for too long. Cell phone location data, a matter of intense interest that you may see Fourth Amendment arguments on soon. And border searches is a very important, very interesting issue application of the Fourth Amendment at the borders. So I commend to you again Andrew Pincus's article uh, thanks for your interest in these issues, and I love to see the idea that we'll tie them all together during the Q&A. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Jim. And to bring in, bring it around to Hobby Lobby to complete the theme, uh, we have Ed Whalen, the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, who directs the uh, EPPC's program on the Constitution, the courts, and cultures. His areas of expertise include constitutional law and the judicial confirmation process. He was a former law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, and before that, a clerk to Judge J. Clifford Wallace of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Thank you, Trevor. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thanks especially to the Cato Institute for the invitation. I do want to acknowledge at the outset that uh, the Cato Institute and Ilya Shapiro submitted an excellent amicus brief in support of Hobby Lobby. I'm also pleased to see that Judge Diane Sykes will be speaking this afternoon. Judge Sykes wrote uh, perhaps the best opinion uh, below on the issues in Hobby Lobby, uh, and uh, her analysis very much uh, is parallel to that of Justice Alito's. And I think, among other things, uh, her opinion gives a lie to the left's bizarre claim that being a woman, or as Ruth Marcus puts it, having a uterus, should somehow lead one to rule against the religious liberty claims against the HHS mandate. There's been lots of confused uh, public commentary about this case. That confusion, oddly enough, has continued uh, beyond the ruling, and even more oddly, 
Part of it has uh, been from Justice Ginsburg herself, who you think ought to know better. But among other things, she's been uh, saying this, this, during this, past, this past summer that the court's ruling was a constitutional ruling resting on the free exercise clause. When, else, uh, when as I'll explain, it was clearly uh, entirely a uh, statutory ruling based on the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. She also misstated uh, the basis of, of her own dissent, and I'll get, I'll get to that in a bit. So what I'm going to do is give some background, then talk through the four main issues that the court addressed, uh, and conclude with some remarks about the aftermath of Hobby Lobby. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was enacted in 1993. It was was Congress's response to the court's 1990 decision in Employment Division v. Smith. In that case, the court ruled that neutral, generally applicable laws don't violate the Free Exercise Clause. That ruling was widely regarded as reducing the free exercise protections that had previously existed under cases like Sherbert v. Verner. And the express aim of RIFRA in 1993 was to restore, as a matter of federal statutory law, the protections that existed pre-Smith under the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, RIFRA is at heart a very simple statute. It, it has a threshold inquiry and then a strict scrutiny standard. The threshold inquiry uh, looks to uh, whether the government has substantially burdened a person's exercise of religion. Uh, if the answer to that question is yes, you proceed to the strict scrutiny inquiry, which asks whether the government has demonstrated, burden clearly on the government, that application of the burden to the person is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. The HHS mandate, uh, as I think most of you know, uh, is a regulatory implementation of Obamacare. Obamacare delegated to HHS the authority to specify preventive services that group health plans must cover and they must cover without any cost-sharing requirement. The idea is that there are certain services that you don't want to have any disincentive at the point of decision. So yes, there's payment up front, same way there is, say, on an all-you-can-eat buffet. But when it comes to the, the decision you're making on whether you want X, Y, or Z for a whole range of preventive services, the idea is not, not even to have a, a $5 copay. You want to have that decision unencumbered by uh, any f- financial disincentive. Under the rule adopted by the administration, those preventive services include, for women, all FDA-approved contraceptives, including those drugs like Ella and Plan B and devices like the copper IUD that might sometimes operate to kill the early human embryo by preventing implantation in the womb. The rule applies to non-grandfathered group health plans. Now, very briefly, there's a long, tortuous history of the, uh, of the mandate, but uh, you ended up with an exemption for a narrow category of religious employers. You ended up with, with a so-called accommodation for uh, religious nonprofits. That accommodation was designed to address the religious liberty interests of these religious nonprofits by uh, making it so they weren't paying for or suppose they weren't really involved in, uh, in, in the provision of objective to uh, drugs and services. And uh, as for uh, the for-profit employers who uh, don't operate grandfathered plans, the uh, mandate is to operate uh, directly against them. The administration has, has made clear that it gave no consideration at all to how the Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, applies to the HHS mandate. Intense litigation ensued. Uh, I'm going to focus on the litigation brought by the for-profit 
uh, entities. Uh, there's a separate wave of, of, of litigation that was somewhat deferred against the accommodation, and you're hearing a lot about that, that now. Um, basically, a whole set of Catholic and non-Catholic plaintiffs, uh, basically owners of closely held for-profit corporations and the corporate entities themselves, brought suit against the HHS mandate in courts across the country, uh, claiming uh, as the, the core of their argument that this is a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Typically, the Catholic plaintiffs uh, challenged the uh, contraceptive requirement in its totality that is applied to a whole range of contraceptives. Typically, non-Catholic plaintiffs challenged those drugs uh, and, uh, and devices that um, might operate to uh, kill the early embryo. Uh, there's a whole dispute that's, I think, um, uh, on the left about whether it's ever the case that these drugs and devices can operate that way. The FDA says they can. The Obama administration says they, uh, that they can. And even the brief filed by the, uh, the uh, obstetrician associations uh, acknowledged that it certainly can in the case of copper IUD and that the science is far from conclusive on the other, uh, on the other drugs. Let me briefly outline uh, who Hobby Lobby is, because a uh, central question in the case, the one that got most attention, is can this, uh, this corporate entity uh, engage in an exercise of religion? Hobby Lobby is a national chain of more than 500 arts and craft stores with more than 13,000 full-time employees. It's a closely held family business. Its official statement of purpose says it aims to honor the Lord in all we do by operating the company in a manner consistent with biblical principles. Implementing, implementing that statement of purpose, it's closed on Sundays, obviously a great financial cost. It regularly runs newspaper ads around Christmas and Easter that are intensely evangelistic. Gives employers access to chaplains, uh, spiritual counseling, and religiously themed financial courses. Gives millions of dollars each year to ministries. Doesn't allow its trucks to backhaul beer. And does a whole, uh, a whole set of activities that, that, that demonstrate its commitment, its owner's commitment to its, its religious principles. Uh, the same family, the Green family, also owns a chain of uh, a Christian bookstores, Mardell. Uh, you often hear talk about secular for-profit businesses, but one of the plaintiffs in this case was a Christian bookstore, which uh, wouldn't really seem to be a classic example of a secular uh, business. The company has faced massive fines uh, for refusing to comply with the mandate. If they continue to operate these group health plans, Hobby Lobby, for example, would face a fine of nearly $475 million a year. If they chose instead to drop uh, health coverage in addition to the, uh, the, the penalties that suffer in recruiting employees that face uh, a penalty of some $26 million a year for not providing health coverage. The court in Hobby Lobby uh, divided 5-4, the uh, four conservatives and Justice Kennedy uh, in the majority, the four liberals in dissent. Uh, basically, uh, there are four issues up for grabs. First issue is, uh, Hobby Lobby uh, capable uh, of engaging in an exercise of religion? Is its objection to these, uh, to provision of these, uh, objected to drugs an exercise of religion? Uh, on that question, the court divided five to two, with uh, only uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor uh, taking the position that closely held corporations were not persons capable of engaging in an exercise of religion. Uh, under RIFRA. Second issue, uh, does the mandate impose a, a substantial burden on em employers? 
is this multi-million dollar fine a substantial burden? Court unbelievably divided five to four on that. We'll discuss that more in detail in a bit. Third question, uh, we'll get now past the threshold inquiry to the strict scrutiny test. Uh, does the HHS mandate advance a compelling governmental interest? On that question, the, the majority said, we're not going to decide this. There are arguments both ways. We don't need to decide this. We'll assume arguendo that such uh, an interest exists. Justice Ginsburg argued at length that, that it does. And then on the fourth issue, uh, can, has the government shown that the HHS mandate uh, is the least restrictive means of advancing uh, the assumed governmental interest? On that point, again, the court divided 5-4 with Justice Alito pointing out uh, that the accommodation that the administration has offered to religious nonprofits is, by the administration's own representations, a less restrictive means. That therefore defeats um, uh, the, the government's argument that it has somehow show, shown that the mandate, full-fledged mandate, is the least restrictive means. Let's look in some more uh, detail uh, at these. Again, first, um, is, you know, can a corporate entity uh, be a person engaged in exercise of religion? Uh, Justice Alito uh, spells out, for starters, the term person in RIFRA plainly includes corporations. The Obama administration admits as much when it says that nonprofit corporations are persons. Uh, he, he explains that the corporate form, uh, therefore, can't explain the, the exclusion. That is, if you have if nonprofit corp corporations can engage in the exercise of religion, how is it that for-profit corporations can't? He shows further that the profit-making objective has never um, excluded uh, entities from having religious protections. Um, a classic example here, I think, is uh, you know take a kosher deli. Uh, under the dissenters' view, if that deli were obligated to sell uh, uh, non-kosher meat, somehow um, it might have a religious liberty claim if it's unincorporated, but it wouldn't have one uh, if it's incorporated. You often heard from the left that they, the, the, the uh, assertion corporations can't pray, uh, which of course is true, to which we responded in our brief, well, corporations can't, can't dance, uh, can't do a lot of other things that are protected by the First Amendment. That doesn't mean that, that the New York Times is deprived, say, of First Amendment protection as a corporate entity when it does engage in uh, protected uh, those, those First Amendment activities that it can engage in. Curiously, uh, this past summer, Justice Ginsburg said that her Hobby Lobby dissent, quote, really didn't turn on the difference between a corporation and a, and a sole proprietorship. Funny, if you read it, she's saying corporations uh, can't, can't, uh, can't, have, any, can't uh, have any rights in a referendum, can't engage in uh, exercises of religion and, and leaving open the possibility that, that proprietorships could. I think what you see is her real hostility is to, to RIFRA and to the long tradition in this country that recognizes that religious liberty uh, extends to how people carry out business. Let's see, I'm told I'm running a little short on time. Let me jump quickly to uh, the substantial burden question. Again, Alito's analysis was simple. Massive fines for noncompliance, of course, this is a substantial burden. I think it was in uh, uh, the uh, Wisconsin v. Yoder, where there's a $5 penalty on uh, fathers who refuse to send their kids to high school, and that was a substantial uh, burden. Ginsburg in instead says that somehow the connection between the family's religious objections and the contraceptive coverage requirement is too attenuated to rank as substantial, that the linkage has been 
quote, interrupted by independent decision makers. Well, as, as Justice Alito spells out, she's really smuggling into the substantial burden inquiry a very different question, whether the plaintiff's views of what constitute improper moral complicity are, are acceptable. That's a question the court has made clear that the federal courts have no business addressing. There's a precedent called Thomas v. Review Board, which Justice Ginsburg made, made no attempt to confront, much less distinguish, which involved a fellow who objected to making turrets for tanks. Uh, and his, his claim was upheld, even though uh, you could say that uh, he objected to war. But it was a series of independent decisions that would uh, put the turret that he was making on the tanks, that would put the tanks that he, uh, the turrets were put on uh, in the military, they would put those tanks in in warfare that would then use them in warfare, and the court um, made quite clear that it wasn't the court's business to decide uh, what is and is not acceptable, um, uh, an acceptable view of improper moral complicity. On the uh, least restrictive means, the one point I want to emphasize here, because I think it's uh, been confused a lot uh, in the public, is that there is nothing in the court's approach that is to say that the, this, this accommodation uh, for the religious nonprofits is a less restrictive means. There's nothing in that analysis that requires that the accommodation itself be deemed to satisfy RIFRA. Indeed, you saw the same analysis uh, by the Chief Justice in the, uh, uh, the, the, the abortion, uh, McCullen v. Coakley, the, the abortion case. It was decided three days before, abortion protest case. There he identified a number of less restrictive alternatives that the, that the uh, state legislature might have adopted while making clear that it wasn't endorsing the constitutionality of any of those alternatives. So it's enough under RIFRA to say, government, you haven't shown that this is the least restrictive alternative because instead of doing A, you could do B. And if, when we if someone challenges B, you might, they might be able to show you could, uh, you could have done C. And when challenge C, you might be able to show you could have done D. But we don't have to show that, that B somehow um, is, is satisfactory. It makes no sense to put that burden on, on, on the uh, plaintiff challenging uh, the, the government action. Let me uh, finish up by observing um, that the, there's a Wheaton College order that quickly followed on the on tails of the Hobby Lobby ruling. Uh, there, the dissenters, um, without Breyer, Justice Breyer actually, um, claimed that the majority was acting contrary to what it did in Hobby Lobby. Actually, all, all that the, the, the court said in, Wheaton, in the Wheaton College order is, um, uh, th this accommodation, uh, we're giving you relief from this accommodation, Wheaton College. Wheaton College is a religious nonprofit. And there's nothing in there that was inconsistent with the treatment that it, that, that it gave uh, the mandate. Finally, I'll mention uh, Professor Richard Epstein has uh, an essay in the book that's been handed out to you on Hobby Lobby. Uh, as always with uh, uh, Professor Epstein, it's provocative and interesting. I will say that I think it's wrong on almost every major point, as well as some minor ones. Um, among other things, I think it's uh, grossly unfair of uh, Professor Epstein to fault Justice Alito for not assuming that he has four colleagues who are Richard Epstein. Uh, and uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. All right. Uh, does anyone have any comments on anyone's? Other panelists? The $5 penalty in Wisconsin versus Yoder, we should consider that that might be $40 nowadays. Yeah, true. Under, with yeah. inflation. I, I have one question um, for uh, Jacob. Um, Jacob, I was very disappointed that the court didn't uh, uh, overrule Abood, and uh, I guess I'm not optimistic that it ever will. 
Um, I mean, here was an opportunity where it could have done so. Um, why did it not pull the trigger there? And, and, and um, you know, why do you have such hope that it will the next time uh, the case comes around if, if we have this uh, current composition? Well, that's a good question, and it's come up early in the. Uh, it came up in the previous panel too. Why does this court always rule as narrowly as it possibly can? It seems, and you know, nobody seems to know that except that it seems like Justice Roberts favors that, and 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 that's just the way it is. I I can't really explain that, and it it is questionable whether that case is will even make. Will, will the Supreme Court even grant certiorari in a case that just represents the Abood question and? I don't know. That's tough. It seems like these justices would want to, but but will that happen? And will it happen quickly enough that this court is there? I don't know. I, I'm I'm not super optimistic that it will come before them. I think if they were forced to decide it, they'd decide it the right way. But whether we'll actually see that, I don't know. All right. I'm going to open it up for questions. Uh, I, I'm a believer in anonymous speech, so if you don't want to tell me who you are, or you want to say you're Publius or Cato, uh, you can say that. <laughs> I might give a prize to the best alias, uh, but uh, <laughs> any uh, questions for our panel? Gene? Yeah, Gene Meyer, Federal Society. I just thought I'd follow up on the Abood question. Um, the, is there any, and I'd be interested in Ed's reaction as, 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 well, as well as yours, um, is there anything to the th idea that in addition to the minimalism that when, sometimes when you want it, when the court wants to change things, they will kind of make an initial decision in that direction before they make the final one? And I'm wondering if that might, might apply to what's going on here or might be part of the calculation. It certainly looks that way, and if it really looks... When Alito goes through and just trashes a boot and just knocks down every little part of it, it seems almost like he's trying to address in advance the criteria for overruling a past case, for, for overcoming stare decisis, without saying so. So that you're right. So maybe in a later case, you can say, well, we'll see in this past case, we, we, we noted all these things that happened to line up with the criteria for overruling a case uh, in spite of stare decisis. So I think... It's entirely possible that Justice Alito had that in mind, and and why you wouldn't just do it though, I still don't know. Because because they could, so maybe it maybe they think it gives a greater appearance of legitimacy or something. I don't know. I, I can't claim to understand that. Uh, Gene, I thought that teeing up rule um, happened two years ago, and uh, in the case that Jacob had mentioned, uh, SEIUV Knox, uh, everything seemed set for this. And I just don't see how the case comes up again. I mean, who is going to be challenging a union fee through all the litigation when you have Supreme Court precedent saying it's just fine? How, you, you're just going to get slammed uh, circuit after circuit. You're not going to have a circuit conflict. It's going to be difficult for it to get up there. I also think it's, it's worth remembering how incredibly what, what the public sentiment would be about taking this away from the public sector unions. But I always bring up the fact that the, the non-voluntariness is the problem, and unions are trying to realize that, it, that they shouldn't resist decisions that roll back the non-voluntariness, because that's what makes people mad about unions, right? They're, they're basically a sub-government. They, they're a government delegated by the government to the power to tax people who don't want to be a part of them, right? And that's what makes people mad about it. So I think that the unions getting on board would be part of what would help us out. Uh, Ray, I'm sure you have a follow-up to that. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Ray Lajeunesse, Vice President of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. That Brock Harris, Harris, Harris was our case, as was Knox. Yes. Um, I recognize your, your concerns uh, about getting a case up before the court, but I guarantee you we have cases in the pipeline, yeah. as do others. Um, so it's just a question of how quickly we can get them there. Uh, these are cases involving public employees directly, not so-called public employees or fiat public employees. Uh, we also, and I, I want to address a question to Jacob, uh, we have follow-up cases to Harris challenging similar schemes in, in other states, uh, specifically Massachusetts and, and Minnesota. Right now, we're preparing others. Um, and as you point out, Jacob, uh, the unions in both of those cases, or all of those cases so far, have stopped collecting the forced fees. But w w our complaints also allege that the monopoly representation for purposes of lobbying the state is unconstitutional. I'd, I'd like to hear your uh, opinions on that claim. So the exclusive representation, apart from the fact that people are being forced to pay for it, the fact that they're being the, the government is petitioning on their behalf, uh, yeah, it seems to me that, that it's, uh, it's a different claim uh, than, than the one that was ruled on in Harris versus Quinn. Uh, it does seem offensive that they would have other people speaking on their behalf as a sort of ex a privileged, exclusive representative and... Uh, and I would hope that those claims succeed. I, what their prospects for success are, I, I couldn't predict offhand. Well, I think that you've queued up something, though, because I'm currently working on an article or outlining an article to say that public sector unions with the power of forced, forced dues violate the guarantee clause of a Republican form of government. Uh, so that I think there's some room to say that this is a delegation of sovereignty when they're negotiating over how public policy will be outside of the, the constraints of the Republican form of government clause. are unconstitutional is because it uh, distorts the democratic process. So if you have one party able to present its case to the state for more funds, but the individual who has the opposite point of view can't make that case, that distorts the democratic process. Yeah. Ilya? And then, Ruben, you want to bring one to the back? Uh, Ilya Shapiro from Cato. Uh, Ed, could you, uh, I know we've exchanged a little bit about this, about your views on, on Epstein's article, and I don't want to presume that everyone in this room has already read you know, the entire Supreme Court <laughs> review, uh, but I know that your major quibble with him, uh, his analysis, uh, is his attack on Alito for simply assuming arguendo that the state has a compelling interest in pursuing its contraceptive mandate. Uh, and uh, I, I imagine that uh, uh, why Alito did that is because it was easier to decide the case without having to open up a larger hornet's nest on compelling interest. You can explain more on that if, if you like, but uh, you said that just now that you agree, disagree with virtually, I guess, everything that he wrote except the ultimate conclusion that the court was correct. So just uh, expand a little bit about that. Uh, sure. And I got I received the final version only yesterday. It seems not to have changed much from the earlier version that I saw. And I don't don't want to be uh, uh, criticizing uh, Professor Epstein uh, too much without his being here to respond. But on that said, I think I mean, look, I think the the the, the piece is, uh, I think, vintage uh, Richard Epstein. I mean that in a very positive way, as well as uh, with with some some negatives. Uh, he thinks, for example, that the uh, that the uh, question when he discusses the question of, of whether a corporate entity can engage in the exercise of religion, 
There's no sign of any statutes anywhere. Somehow he thinks it should be determined based on the unconstitutional conditions doctrine, which is a doctrine that's, uh, you know, whose contours are sufficiently difficult to discern, but also a doctrine you don't need to get to if you decide this, this case in an ordinary statutory way. Uh, I like a lot of what he has to say on um, the, the uh, no compelling governmental interest. Uh, I do think that when you read um, Kennedy's separate opinion in Hobby Lobby, it's um, pretty easy to conclude that, uh, that Justice Alito may not have had five votes to go very, very, very far on that. And I uh, think that, look, I think the approach that Justice Alito took um, that is relying on this uh, existence of a less restrictive means should have attracted um, all the justices. I think it was a, it was, uh, I, I'm no great fan of minimalism, but in this case, that was a, a minimalist approach that avoided some of the thornier questions and I think uh, Justice Ginsburg has no meaningful answer uh, to that. Uh, I think uh, Professor Epstein seems very critical of, uh, seems to think of somehow illegitimate. Um, you know, he presents RIFRA as though you need to go to the second, as though this uh, compelling governmental interest test needs to be addressed first rather than being assumed. Um, but uh, that's a basic outline of, 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 of my concerns. Um, I, may, I might write about this uh, in the next few days in order to give him a chance to you know, shoot back at me if he cares to. Um, but uh, again, I don't think, um, I mean, I think there are, there are some serious uh, mistakes, but more broadly, I mean, it's a great insight into the fascinating mind of Richard Epstein, but I don't think it has much to say about how this court, as it's constituted, might conceivably have decided the case. Hi, David Frost, and I apologize if this question just shows that I haven't read the cases very well. But uh, if memory serves, Obamacare was originally upheld based on its being a tax. Uh, of course, nobody gets a religious exemption from paying taxes. So does this create any kind of a tension with the Hobby Lobby decision, which essentially says that well, there is an exemption in this case, but there's this religious exemption. You couldn't make that same argument to anything else that we would consider as a tax? Well, I don't think so. I mean, again, what was challenged uh, in the uh, first case you referred to, NFIB v. Sibelius, if I have the name right, um, was the uh, individual mandate. Uh, and the challenge to the HHS mandate is, is discreet, and I think that, um, that the, the, the court, um, with, you know, without defending you know, the result in the first case, I think it's entirely coherent to reach uh, one result in one case and another result in the other. Well, the, um, so the individual mandate, Obamacare just tries to wrestle everything in the society healthcare system into a box. And so it has multiple vectors. So if there's an employer mandate that says employers have to supply health insurance or pay us fine, there's an individual mandate that says if you're not employed and get that through this, or you're not getting through Medicaid, you're not getting, then you also still have to get health insurance. And the individual mandate does have religious-based exemptions. For example, the Amish uh, for people who are members of other religious organizations since after December 31st, 1950. I, I just looked this up the other day, so I'm not sure that, that, that these are exemptions in there. Christian uh, minist health ministries, uh, they, they lobbied to get an exemption from the individual side, but this is the employer side, uh, which creates that, that confluence of interest class clashes. Uh, Todd. <coughs> Since Trevor outed me, I'll admit it. Todd oh, Gaziano okay. <laughs> from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, I don't want to try to psychoanalyze why Ginsburg misrepresents her own opinion, except maybe her law clerks are doing more of her work. But um, I'm more interested in uh, 
a topic that two panels ago addressed with regard to campaign finance reform, why um, uh, the uh, contraceptive issue in the Hobby Lobby case seemed so partisan in the intentional way that the decision was misrepresented uh, by others. There were some great people who, of course, uh, including my colleague Tim Sandifer, who, who, who wrote an article that it was not denial of a reproductive right for the government to allow an exemption for an employer not to pay for 100% of all contraceptives. So it was you know, rather galling when Hillary Clinton on her book tour said, misrepresented the case, I, I would think knowingly, um, and Harry Reid and, and so many other people. Why, why is this an issue that, why, is, why this aspect of religious liberty or, 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 or is all, all religious liberty these days becoming a, a, a partisan issue? Well, look, it's no secret that the White House used this um, issue, I think, effectively as part of its uh, fraudulent war on women uh, campaign in the 2012 election. I think Democrats will continue to pound that uh, for as long as they can. Talking about uh, politician statements, I have here something from uh, Senator Durbin, representing the state of idiocy, who uh, uh, contends that the Hobby Lobby ruling, get this, violates the fundamental premise of Griswold. <laughs> you know, somehow no, no one thought to argue that in the case. Um, so, uh, look, I think, um, you know, I agree entirely with the, the points that Trevor has made, and I, I would hope that, that um, some of the religious folks who naively uh, think that uh, the uh, intentions of big government, the, good, the supposed good intentions of big government require their support, would understand that uh, statism uh, is an intense conflict with religious liberty. And the more they support statism, the more they are going to be, you know, marginalizing uh, themselves or their or their colleagues. Um, I think you see a, a real conflict between the classic liberal vision that Cato so powerfully stands for and the uh, modern progressive vision, which seeks to eliminate um, all uh, civil institutions, meeting institutions between the individual and the state. Uh, and I think that and, you know, the, the politics of the uh, sexual revolution, if you like, are, are um, at the very core of this. Anyone? No? Oh, there. Uh, Jeff Mittman from Rockville. Uh, as part of the Hobby Lobby decision, there's been some discussion about the piercing of the corporate veil. Uh, could you go into what that is and whether you, how you come down on that discussion? Well, I'll try. I'm no corporate law expert, but basically there are some circumstances in which the so-called corporate veil that protects uh, uh, individual shareholders from uh, personal liability can be pierced and they can be made um, uh, liable. The corporate entity can be disregarded. Um, Justice Alito, uh, you know, addresses um, this point, uh, some in his opinion, and I think that, uh, you know, again, in the same way that uh, the New York Times Corporation um, has First Amendment rights despite being um, a, a, a corporation, uh, so other rights are available to corporate entities, um, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they're, that, that, that they're, uh, that they're our, our corporations. So, um, I, I think uh, Stephen Bainbridge of UCLA has written effectively on why um, the, the, the veil-piercing doctrine doesn't um, 
isn't at all inconsistent with the result here. And I, I'm not sure I can speak any uh, more to it than I have. You can almost think about that because the court really holds that it's the individual rights. It's the you know it's hard to draw that line to say I'm a single proprietorship and this burdens my rights, but I have an LLC. Do two people, three people? It's burdening your rights. Uh, so the court almost says that these religious restrictions pierce the veil of the corporation in a more metaphorical sense by burdening the specific rights of the people who are in the corporation. And when it comes to closely held corporations, and maybe there's a tax lawyer here who can correct me, but I understand that the individuals are, uh, that the shareholders are, are taxed as individuals. There's already a, you know, some sort of pass through that, that occurs already there. So um, in, any, in any event, there's no, you know, uh, sort of categorical, um, insulation of um, owners from the corporation in a way that that uh, means that you can act on the corporation without uh, intruding on the rights of the individual well, I'm gonna ask a question for Jim since he, he maybe oh. feels left out <laughs> uh, <laughs> could you talk a little bit more about the the third party doctrine that you mentioned um, and where that came from and, and how it's uh, being used to do mass surveillance and and what you think about the Riley case will help us in those fights to come about protecting our digital life? Yeah, I, uh, well, so thanks for the question. I thought I might skate without getting any <laughs> questions. But uh, the third-party doctrine, for those who aren't familiar with it, is, is maybe one of the key doctrines to understand for the debates about, uh, about domestic spying and, uh, as, we move into the, as we move into the digital age. It originates uh, in two cases after the Bank Secrecy Act, which was passed in 1970. Bank Secrecy Act for the first time required financial services providers to collect information about their customers, ultimately to be turned over to law enforcement for their use. And this a pair of pair of cases fascinatingly did a two-step around the Fourth Amendment, where in the in the case that challenged the collection of this information, uh, the court concluded, well, the government hasn't accessed it, so there's no Fourth Amendment claim. The issue isn't even ripe. Come back when it's been accessed. And in the second of the two cases, uh, the, 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 the challenge came up, the data had been accessed, and the court said, well, you shared the information with a third party, so you don't have any Fourth Amendment claim in this, in, in this information. Uh, um, Justice Thurgood Marshall was particularly prescient in his dissent to the first case, saying there's a case coming where this will happen, and, and, it, and it precisely did. In uh, Smith v. Maryland, 1976 case, uh, the court applied the, the third-party doctrine to the question whether uh, telephone dialing information was subject to Fourth Amendment protection. And in a case that, that the, the, the literal text of the case uh, doesn't even consider any counter-arguments to the idea that a person would have uh, a privacy expectation, they did use Katz, uh, Katz privacy expectation doctrine, the question whether a person would have a privacy expectation in phone dialing information, simply the fact that, that the dialing information was shared with a third party uh, lifted lifted any Fourth Amendment protection from it. The 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 government has has argued in in the NSA cases so far, and obviously in public debate, that uh, infinity times zero is zero. You have no interest Fourth Amendment interest in your phone dialing information. Nobody has any interest in their phone dialing information. The government can access all of our phone dialing information every day without implicating. Uh, any Fourth Amendment rights. So the, the, I mentioned the, the, the case that's being argued in the D.C. Circuit. The, the case in the Second Circuit was argued just, just last week or, or perhaps the week before uh, in, in, in a televised uh, proceeding, which was fascinating for, for lots of us to watch. And 
I mean, I mean, I suppose everybody probably watches oral argument through their own lens, but I, I certainly think that the, the third-party doctrine got a good grilling uh, in the, in that argument. So watch for the third-party third-party doctrine to be central in in these cases about our communications privacy. Relates to Riley because this was a phone with data in it that uh, is quite similar and often a copy of the data that we talk about with respect to NSA spying. Yeah, and the, I think the language in the case about how important your digital life is now, this is the thing about technology cases. The Supreme Court is often like a little older maybe than the median age of the population. And so they will ask questions like, how is Napster like a VCR? Or is this like a pager or things like that? But they, I assume they all have smartphones and they have an idea that this is a very big part of your life and it deserves protection. And they have a lot of language in there that says that. In Jones, so the Jones case was interesting doctrinally. That's the GPS case. Because it was, there was a split with Justice Sotomayor joining Justice Scalia's opinion to make that uh, what I characterize as the property-based argument. The attachment of the device was the constitutional, uh, uh, constitutionally important behavior. Although I should, I should point out and should have pointed out that the language the court used there was that the totality of the attachment and the use of it constituted a search. It's my gloss, which should be very helpful to future courts, that, it, that, that, was, that was a property issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, the, the, the Scalia majority opinion uh, focused on the, on, on the attachment of the device. Justice Alito's uh, minority concurrence, that is, the, 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 the outcome was the unanimous one, but the uh, four-member concurrence argued strongly that this should go down on reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine. And that set up... Uh, the question, which might have been answered by Riley, but I think Riley fairly studiously avoided tipping tipping the hand of the court on these issues for a later day. Uh, with that, uh, we will have a 15-minute break before our next panel, but please join me in thanking our panel.